0: the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that opinions all are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law sensitive topics are discussed discretion is advised on this
1: week's court tv podcast we're tracking a trial from florida where defendant ronnie o'neill is not only on trial for double murder but is also acting as his own lawyer Famed Jodi Arias defense attorney turned author Kirk Nurmi joins me to
0: discuss how O'Neill did as his own advocate. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinny Politan.
1: I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for downloading the Court TV Podcast. I uh, really do appreciate it. This week uh, on the podcast, we're taking a look at a case that is extremely unusual on many different levels. And it all begins with the defendant. Ronnie O'Neill is his name. He's representing himself inside the courtroom. He's not a lawyer. He's a murder defendant facing the death penalty. The accusation that he murdered his girlfriend, his daughter that he shared with that girlfriend, who is also special needs, and stabbed his son who survived and is a witness against him inside the courtroom. Okay, so that's sort of the the, the groundwork for this. Now, it was an absolutely horrific crime that he uh, beat and and shot his girlfriend, took an axe and chopped his daughter up and then stabbed his son who survived. His son was eight years old at the time, 11 years old, testifying at the trial. So as his own attorney, he is doing the arguments and he's also cross-examining and questioning witnesses, including the star witness against him, his own son. So you put all that together, you've got really a, a very unusual, um, dramatic, and, and potentially traumatic trial uh, happening down in Tampa, Florida So um, as I mentioned It's a death penalty case So everything is at stake So uh, joining us on the podcast A very special guest um, You'll recognize him He represented Jody Arias uh, Kirk Nermy is with us He's also the author of Trapped with Arias," A series of books that he wrote About his experiences And uh, trust me folks I say this every time I introduce him uh, He hates uh, Jody Arias As much as you do uh, Kirk, thank you so much For joining us
2: Benny, great to be with you and great to be talking about this uh, most interesting of death penalty cases with you.
1: Absolutely. Well, let's start with the death penalty itself. Um, You know, he's representing himself in a death penalty trial. He's not a trained attorney. Uh, My understanding is that and and I've seen this in, in various jurisdictions around the country in cases that we've covered, where sometimes even attorneys who are fully licensed can't represent a defendant in a death penalty case.
2: Right, most states years ago, based on the American Bar Association guidelines, passed a set of rules required to have competency with uh, death penalty attorneys. And in Arizona, ultimately, that meant that I had to have a certain amount of major felony trials under my belt before I could even second chair a death penalty trial. And then it wasn't until I had second chaired a death penalty trial that I was certified to service lead counsel on a death penalty trial. So ultimately, Mr. O'Neill is doing this with no legal education, no experience, and none of the expertise uh, required in most states of of even licensed attorneys to do the kind of thing that he is attempting to do in in
1: court. So what are your thoughts about that? Do you you think— this is fair is this is this justice is this the way the system should work when someone who um, decides listen i want to represent myself i know the case better than anyone i care about it more than anyone i don't trust whoever these attorneys are i'm going to do it myself um do you think that are you okay with it i guess really is my question
2: well ultimately yes because the sixth amendment grants each person each one of us the right to counsel and or to be our own counsel against the you know to face the charges that are put against us and ultimately the penalty should not affect that principle and so ultimately if someone and it's their life that's at stake so if they want to uh, do the work as it were and defend themselves uh, i believe this under the sixth amendment they should have every right to do that
1: okay so that's what's happening in this courtroom and as we're speaking um the, the trial is still continuing right now and um We're in the penalty phase right now. So, uh, spoiler alert, the jury found him guilty, okay? There was overwhelming evidence. Uh, But what I want to do is there was another part of this case that was extremely unusual. I I spoke about the, the star witness for the prosecution, which was the Defendant's son, he was eight when he was uh, stabbed by his father, survived that, 11 years old, testifying against his father. He was in a remote area, had a, um, a, a service comfort uh, dog with him as he's testifying and being cross-examined by his father. But after this horrific murder, one of the police officers adopted that, that, that little boy and is now raising that little boy. And that officer took the witness stand. And yes, the defendant had to cross-examine him as well. Let's take a listen to that.
3: Thank you, sir, for all that you've done. You mean that the of my heart to the top of my head, I'm afraid
1: of Kirk, how unusual is this for, okay, um, a man facing the death penalty, accused of double murder, accused of stabbing his son, cross-examining the officer who adopted his son and thanking him in front of the jury.
2: Boy, this is definitely a truth is stranger than fiction kind of situation, Vinny. It's hard to imagine. I've never even encountered anything close to this because of all these moving pieces, all these different scenarios. It's it's mind-boggling what is playing out in this Florida courtroom.
1: What? I mean, this is unprecedented. It's it, you know it's bizarre because when someone's representing themselves, right, and they're asking questions, they're talking about themselves, so they so they have to reference themselves. So it's kind of strange in that uh, uh, realm, right? But here, the it's so personal. I mean, this defendant is cross-examining the man who's raising his son because he murdered the his son's mother and stabbed the son. Uh, this is. How does a jury process what they're, I mean, jurors come down there for many of them. It may be the only time they're ever in a courtroom. It may be the only time they ever serve on a jury or watch a criminal trial. And they're experiencing this.
2: Yeah, it's got to be quite shocking for them because I'm sure most people walk into jury duty not even thinking they're going to be a death penalty case. And then they're selected they go through the hurdles of a death penalty case and then they realize that mr o'neill's representing himself he's shouting during opening arguments shouting during closing arguments and there's all this dramatic uh, you know entanglement between himself and, and many of the witnesses how they process it is going to be key i think when we talk about what what verdict they ultimately render between life or death because they're seeing so much emotion coming out And how do they connect to that emotion? How do 12 people connect to that emotion? Because remember, when we get to the next phase, now that he's been found guilty, each person has to believe that he is worthy of death. So it's going to be how each individual on that jury processes those interactions.
1: Yeah. And I think on the one hand, you you look at him thanking the man who's raising his son. That shows uh, some level of humanity in this defendant. But then the backdrop of of what he did to his girlfriend and what he did to his daughter, he poured gasoline on him after the murder. All of this is unreal. Now, let's get to the other Ronnie O'Neill in the courtroom. This is the one now who's making the arguments. And uh, let's listen. This is his closing argument during the guilt phase. Okay, During the guilt phase, obviously, the jury didn't buy his arguments. But let's take a listen.
3: They don't want you to know that they are crooked and corrupt. And they know that they could not meet their such high burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So they tamper with the face of Kenyatta Baron and put all these extra lacerations on her face. And whoever did it
1: is definitely gonna pay. You better leave. Mm. Okay. So, I mean, part of his closing argument, uh, a large part of it, is is based upon a a you know, there's some sort of conspiracy where they were trying to make him look like a menace to society. I think is what he was <laughs> was saying in 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 different parts during his opening and closing. So as you listen to him there with the conspiracies, are you at all concerned, Kirk, about his mental state during the course of this trial?
2: Well, yes and no. I mean, we certainly see that he's got this conspiracy theory that is seems to only exist in his head. Right. But we've also heard the judge compliment him. She said, you know, in another life, he could have been a lawyer. There was moments of coherence in everything that he put together. So he knew the evidence. He was attacking some of the things. Now, this, again, it got really bombastic during opening and closing arguments, right? But I think we have this judge that has grounded him and said, hey, you're doing some good job." So, you know, there's kind of a mixed bag there. And ultimately, when we get to that penalty phase, I believe his lawyers, who is allowing to take over when it comes to this phase, are going to give us more of an insight and the jury, most importantly, more of an insight to his mental health. And maybe we'll get some further explanation as to why he believes his conspiracy theories, what is going on with his mental fitness.
1: Well, let's listen to a little bit more. And I, I mentioned that he had this theory, this, this theme of being a menace to society. Here, here's the part where he uh, directly addresses that.
3: They falsified the audio recordings from her phone and they falsified the 911 call to make me look like a damn menace to society.
1: All right. Let's talk a little bit about just his 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 way of presenting. And and I've been accused on the air of being overly dramatic, Kirk, and, and sometimes a, a screaming. But um, what are your thoughts about, you know, the look on his face, the look in his eyes, the sound of his voice, the tone of him addressing the jury?
2: You know, I've seen defendants when they represent themselves kind of take that demeanor like it's a big conspiracy against them. The lawyers aren't there to help them. That sort of thing. So that's ultimately what he's projecting. And I think, Vinny, the jury could be certainly taken aback by that. But they're going to get some context of it when they move forward into the penalty phase. And I think that context is really going to be important takeaway for the jury when they decide between life or
1: death. And and the other part here is that he he seems to understand generally the rules in court. I mean, it was very... It was very interesting. Listening to his opening statement, he kept uh, the the refrain that we hear from lawyers all the time and we see on on television shows like Law & Order. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the evidence will show and the evidence will show, which is what, you're, what the point of an opening statement is. You're just supposed to outline what the evidence will show in the case. You don't make arguments. And he seemed to catch on to that. He caught on to the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt and all that. So, I mean, you sprinkle that throughout what he's saying, Kirk, and- you know, he he has the makings of someone who who knows just enough to get himself convicted. It seems.
2: Yeah, you know, I think Vinny, that's a good way to put it because he's got his advisory counsel. Who knows how much of his legal training did come from watching TV, and he's able to use some of those words. And I think ultimately, though, if he gets death, his competence is going to be his undoing because the fact that he did do a decent job representing himself as a pro per defendant is going to help seal his fate should he be sentenced to death because there will be no room or less room for an ineffective assistance of counsel claim because he did such a decent job.
1: Yeah, the, the better he does, the worse it is for him, <laughs> basically, in, in the in the long term. It, it, it's, it's incredible. Okay, now, I said he, for the most part... Um, followed the rules there were a few moments where he strayed from the norms strayed from where uh, attorneys may go during their closing arguments let's take a listen to one of those moments
3: he's playing a fraudulent damn recording of me beating Kenyar Barron 15 damn times when that did not happen and like I told you earlier you will know the truth, whether in this trial or the next one. Better believe it.
4: If you think
3: I'm here to play
4: around with y'all, you damn it, or All right, Mr. O'Neill, please stop using um, swearing language. It's not appropriate in a closing argument.
1: <laughs> and I know there's a lot of attorneys, Kirk, who might want to use the swearing language during a closing argument, um, but you can't just swear for the purpose of swear. I mean, you can quote someone, right? Like if some of the evidence or testimony includes a swear, you can kind of work it in. But otherwise, it's not really appropriate. Uh,
2: you're right, Vinny. I mean, that's exactly the only context that language is used in when you're quoting someone else. And, you know, we see him going off the rails a little bit. It does lead to questions about his mental health. And then on the flip side of it is, does it, does it show the jury what kind of temper this man has and how that temper could have translated into his
1: crimes? Yeah, that's that's the part that really struck me. The, the look in his eyes on, on how on, on a flip of a switch it, it, it can happen. There was another moment, Kirk, during the prosecutor's closing argument. And, you know, we as I'm a former prosecutor's prosecutors, one of our favorite things to do, Kirk, and I'm sure you saw it many times in the courtroom, is when the prosecutor points at the defendant. Inside the courtroom You know Ladies and gentlemen This man over here Is the one Who committed the crime You know And the prosecutor Did that in this one But uh, Ronnie O'Neill Was having no part of it And he said he, "He said You better watch your hands I mean It was He didn't scream it He kind of It was almost more Intimidating In the tone He so calmly Told the prosecutor To watch he, You better watch your hands I mean that's That's another moment That to me uh revealed um you know how real these allegations and 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 what was actually done in this case because this guy to me seems like he is capable of flipping that switch and 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 just and and going to a really dark dark place well Vinny, you're right and he,
2: you know he had to know that is
1: coming he had advisory
2: counsel all along he's got to know that the The finger of accusation is going to be wagged at him in the the way prosecutors like to do. And ultimately, he just could not contain himself. And it shows an inability to contain his anger, especially think about what's at stake here, too. I mean, his life in prison is at stake and he can't control his temper enough to just simply let something like that slide and just move on and present his defense. He had to react. He couldn't help himself.
1: And, and, you know, I I have to believe that there's maybe one or maybe many more jurors who who look at him and see someone who's dangerous. And I mean, that's another part of it, right? That our, 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 system of criminal justice is set up for many reasons to punish wrongful offenders, but it's also to protect society. And I wonder how many jurors seeing him display himself and his range of emotions, um, are thinking this guy is very dangerous and the more dangerous they think he is uh the closer he gets to death row i think
2: well certainly that's true i mean the, the crime itself i mean given that he was able to manifest his temper onto his own children right i mean that in and of itself is a huge factor that shows that his temper may know no bounds and in his defense he didn't do anything to quell that right in his opening, particularly those opening and closing statements, with those that bombastic tone, the the foul language, all that stuff. So you're right, Vinny. All that piles up upon itself when the jury is considering: is this guy? Is this the kind of guy whose life we should spare? Is there something redeemable about him, which is what the defense is going to try to show? And he did shoot himself in the foot, like we said earlier. His competence. And it was his undoing. And so, too, was his display uh, of temper in regard to the penalty phase.
1: All right. We're going to listen to more of his closing arguments and then talk about the penalty phase. Kirk Nurmi is with us. We'll be right back.
0: journalist Ashley Banfield takes you behind the scenes of the most compelling cases in history This is the new chapter in True Crime. Judgment with Ashley Banfield. All new episodes Sunday night at eight on Court TV
3: The state has not met its burden of proof which they have to meet beyond a reasonable doubt and I have showed you several reasonable doubts, reasonable reasons to disbelieve what they're saying to you. Check out the
1: records. That's Ronnie O'Neill representing himself in court. There's one of the moments where he sounds almost like a lawyer, um, you know, very close, and talking about the burden of proof, such a big part of every case, probably the the most the, the most difficult. Um, Part of being a prosecutor is meeting that burden because we know how high it is and how difficult it is. And and there you have Ronnie O'Neill accused of the murder of his daughter, his girlfriend, stabbing his son, pouring gasoline on the victims. Uh, Unreal uh, what took place here. But they're really uh, focusing in on the legal aspect of what this jury had to decide—that was part of his closing argument. Kirk Nurmi is still with us, uh, the man who represented Jody Arias. Um, so, listening to that part of Ronnie O'Neill again brings us back to the fact that he's not totally um, hasn't had a total break from from reality. He un- he understands what's at stake. I mean, throughout this entire thing, I really as 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 far out as some of the arguments are and his expressions and and other things at the end of the day i'm trying to figure out um what he doesn't understand about what's going on and 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 to me it seemed like throughout this trial that he understood what was going on it's just his legal theory or on uh, or his theory of defense really wasn't necessarily a defense because he focused on things that really weren't um the most important which is raising doubts about the actual murders as opposed to focusing on whether or not he made a 911 call uh to police before his girlfriend called 911 so it was things like that to, that that to me kirk made it seem like he wasn't totally focused in on the best defense that he could have presented uh but other than that, he kind of understood what was going on.
2: Well, yeah, he did. You can tell that he was tied in those moments of clarity to things like reasonable doubt, burden of proof, those sort of things. But, but you're also right when you say, listen, those moments of clarity were interceded by theories or facts or events that only happened, only seemed to exist in his mind right there was never any proof of anything he put forward he had this idea that it was this big grand conspiracy against him that there was no really no real evidence to that effect right so he had his legal theories he had those bases he just didn't have the facts to support them and like we said earlier that's still going to be his undoing because not having the facts to support them isn't doesn't make someone an ineffective assistant to counsel it's it's very typical of a defense attorney to not have too many cards to play. And unfortunately for Mr. O'Neill, the cards that that he had to play only existed in his head.
1: Now, how about the other part of, of defending someone who's been accused, which is the investigation, right? I mean, that's a, that's a big part of preparing for trial. And, and part of what you present at trial is based upon the investigation you've done. And he seemed to do his own little investigation by getting his hands on phone records, etc., um, but it would seem there's a lot more that would that could be done in a death penalty case when it's time to investigate the witnesses, the facts and everything else that's going on. And then to take that investigation and have it be part of the defense. To me, that's the part that was that was very much lacking in his presentation versus what I would see uh, in a case presented by Kirk Nurmi or any other criminal defense attorney.
2: Yeah, you're right, Vinny. I mean, death penalty attorneys, going back to what we talked about earlier about the certification, we're also required to investigate the case with fresh eyes, right? We have our investigators. We don't just accept the government's word for it. We go out, we interview as many witnesses as possible. We have other experts take a look at the crime scene, things like that, depending on what the case calls for. And here, I think with Mr. O'Neill, He was so obsessed with this conspiracy, and he would be ultimately directing the investigation as the, it's a funny way to say it, but as his own lead counsel, right? He would be directing the investigators on what to look for, and his fixation on this conspiracy is ultimately probably what he directed his investigators to look for. And to some degree, in that degree anyway, hamstrung the investigation that could bring some of those facts forward.
1: Now, there's another part of the case that that is interesting because I think he understands how you can in, impeach a witness's uh, testimony by bringing up a prior inconsistent statement. And that's, you know, that's something that defense attorneys um, rely upon very heavily. And we see in a lot of cases, and it's not like the most straightforward thing, but he seemed to um, – understand that to a certain extent in in trying to impeach the testimony of his 11-year-old son. Um, Let's take a listen to how he handled that during his closing argument, that issue where trying to impeach the credibility of his son who testified against him.
3: Mr. Gale just told you that my son told you that I took gasoline and poured it over my uh, daughter's body. I showed you in the interview with Miss Jennifer Miller, she asked him, did you see your dad pour gasoline anywhere in the house? And he said, no, I did not. But they are ready to use my son against me, but they weren't ready to use Khalil Brown for some reason. When he's seven years older than my son, and so exactly what happened
1: this is interesting because it, it, he seems to be making the argument that investigators and prosecutors were manipulating his son who was so young into uh testifying and saying what the prosecution needed which uh is interesting. it's it's, it's a relatively sophisticated approach and argument to make here kirk and and Probably one of his better moments, I guess, in in, in terms of trying to make some sort of argument that perhaps someone could buy into.
2: Right. I mean, he, he went after what he believed were to be inconsistent statements and motivations for his son, who, as we talked about earlier, was adopted by the lead detective, saying that he was influenced in his testimony with the lead detective. That is the kind of thing that a lawyer would take a look at. And he did do that. Um, So there was, again, that was one of those moments of lucidity. Although with what we heard in that closing argument, the temper that it was asserted with kind of negates the point he's making and maybe kind of makes him turn out to look more angry and a guy capable of doing something like that than a lawyer who's impeaching that testimony which is which is why it's a good idea to um not represent yourself
1: yeah, well uh, among many other reasons but you know it's interesting though you, you, but if you put the words in a transcript and in in an appeal it's it's you know that appellate court's not going to hear any of that. They're just going to see words on on paper and and they'll look at it and say, Oh, it looks like he knows what he what he was doing there. I mean, I don't I don't, I don't see why he needs a new trial. So as a prosecutor, uh, I'm I'm glad that he made some of these arguments that he did. So I think it I think it'll help at the next level. Now, let me ask you the ultimate question here, right? Um if he had a lawyer during the guilt phase, would the 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 results been any different? I mean, he was convicted. They they deliberated for five hours, okay? Close to five hours of deliberation. They just didn't walk into that jury room and and come back two minutes later and say, yeah, this guy is off the wall. He's obviously guilty. No, they deliberated for five hours on these charges. Would, the, would it have been any different if he was represented by an attorney during the guilt phase?
2: You know, people might be shocked by this, but ultimately, I don't think so. I mean, a, d- a defense attorney can only play the cards that they have. And when you have this kind of evidence and this kind of testimony, um, it's pretty hard for a defense attorney to prove reasonable doubt under these circumstances. So, you know, would it have maybe taken a little longer? I don't know. The, the Deliberations might have lasted till today. But, you know, ultimately, uh, I think the
1: result would have been the same. That's and, and, and to me. I you know again looking looking ahead if if an appellate court takes a look at this issue and I'm sure they will about him representing himself was there was you know and and the bottom line is the evidence is overwhelming and that's the the main problem that he had uh during the guilt phase now it's a death penalty case and in many death penalty cases it's ultimately about that issue uh because the the guilt is is Many times obvious, and I've covered many trials like that on Court TV where the real issue is, okay, what will the jury do? Will they sentence him to death or will they sentence him to to life? What recommendation will they make? Um, And before they got to that moment of beginning the penalty phase, which we're in the middle of now, we don't know the results of that, but you can check the show notes, folks, to find out Um, the judge talked to O'Neill about whether or not he should represent himself When it's his actual life that is on the line. Take a listen.
4: So, Mr. O'Neill, now that you have been found guilty of first degree murder, we now go into penalty phase. And as you are aware, it gets no more serious for any defendant in any criminal courtroom in this country than what you are facing now. Um, I respect the fact that you chose to represent yourself, and I have to tell you, um, I think in another lifetime, you would have been an excellent lawyer. I really think that. You speak with great passion. I understood exactly the points you were making. I I knew what you were attempting to get across in your opening statement, your cross-examination of the state witnesses, the direct examination of your witnesses, and your closing argument. Um, Ultimately, your arguments were not persuasive to the jury. But nonetheless, I was able to follow exactly what you were trying to accomplish. However, as we move into penalty phase, I'm really going to strongly encourage you to consider allowing counsel to now step in and represent you.
1: Okay, this is like, okay. we're at the point of no return now. We're in the penalty phase and the judge is kind of laying it down and uh, trying to persuade him to really have counsel represent him when his life is on the line and and kirk he made that decision and um he made the right decision i mean he now has counsel representing him how important is that number one uh for the case for our system of justice and 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 for the defendant himself as well
2: that's huge because Vinny, we talked about his competency during the trial or his moments of lucidity during the trial but there's a whole, when we talk about the death penalty, we talk about also effective assistance of counsel at the penalty phase, at the sentencing phase, right? And that's a lot more complicated than using words like reasonable doubt, burden of proof, and everything else. A, a death penalty lawyer in a case like this is going to be working closely with whatever mental health professionals have been employed to uh, analyze the defendant, that sort of thing. And if the state has a psychologists, i will be working with that expert to look at what the state's presenting. And that requires a certain amount of at least a working knowledge of the tests, a working knowledge of the disorders. I mean, I remember when I was practicing, I had a diagnost- diagnostic manual that the psychologists use, so I could help under- help myself understand everything that was going on, every disorder, how the tests were administered, those sort of things. And that is very, very complex type of Work as are the aggravating factors and what makes and doesn't make for an aggravating factor. So that gets so much more complicated, and that is something. And the judge was well taken to advise him of this because his competency in in, in that regard would certainly come back to be an issue should he be sentenced to death.
1: And giving a, a fresh voice to the defense uh, when it's time for for this part of the trial. Um, Could be helpful as well, I think, you know, because they heard from him. Obviously, they didn't believe him. They didn't buy uh, what he was selling. They believe he's a murderer, a brutal murderer. And for him to be the one delivering the message on life or death just just seemed like there's no way that's going to work unless the jury somehow, uh, you know, read very deeply into him and somehow felt some level of sympathy for him. But I can't imagine that they would. Uh, But at this point now, you've got a a defense team that is going to be able to to do that and give it a, a new voice to the defense and maybe concede certain things but then uh really battle on other issues when it's time to make that ultimate decision
2: you know that's right Vinny. i think what we talked about earlier context right they're going to be able to provide context for some of the things they saw mr O'Neill with his psychological background they're going to be able to present family members that can give a picture of the defendant outside the crime i mean one of the battles that goes on in these type of cases is The state, the prosecutor wants you to focus, wants the jury to focus simply on the crime and the criminal, what should be done. And in this case, the defense is looking at the overall person, which is what the Supreme Court requires that they take a look at in order to make that assessment. So that's what they're going to be able to do. But keep in mind, Vinny, you know, Mr. O'Neill will still have a chance to give an allocution to the jury. So what he says in that allocution could also blow up everything the defense attorneys are going to present moving forward. So it's going to be interesting how that plays out.
1: Absolutely. Kirk Nermy, uh thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this week. Great to have your, your insight and your expertise. Please come back soon.
2: Vinny, always a pleasure to talk with you.
1: All right, folks, when we come back, I'll give you my final word on this case. And at the end of the day, uh, I will tell you, I believe that a justice was served and this is before we even know what the what the penalty phase says okay that's a to me the death penalty is a very personal decision for jurors i never criticize them one way or the other um i I have certain beliefs one way or the other on certain defendants whether they deserve the ultimate penalty uh but for me uh, i'll explain to you why i believe justice was served in this
0: case that's next
1: Justice was served in this case, and I don't even know the outcome of the penalty phase. Okay? And we're talking about Ronnie O'Neill. It's a horrific, horrific case. One of of the most horrific that you could imagine what happened to this little girl, special needs, uh, the girl's mom, and this little boy who survived it and is now being raised uh, by one of the investigators, one of the officers in the case. It's, It's unreal. But the reason I'm saying justice is served because the truth came out the truth was revealed and there are obvious rules of, of procedure. There are rules of evidence. There are rules of decorum. There are burdens of proof, all of these things that make up our our system of justice and, and make up criminal trials. But the goal of every criminal trial is to seek the truth. And, and when the truth comes out, then I believe that the trial was a success and when the truth doesn't come out, then the trial wasn't necessarily a success. And here it did, because you got to hear a lot from this defendant, a lot from this defendant. You got to see who he was. He revealed himself. The, the look in his eyes, the, the tone of his voice, um, where he went, his thought process, all of that was revealed in front of the jury. And, and he didn't even testify. He chose not to take the stand in his own defense, which is amazingly ironic in, in, in all of this. But he pretty much did testify uh, through representing himself. You, you got the flavor for who he is and, 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 and what happened and why it happened. And while it's clear to me that he suffers from some level of mental illness, I don't know how much different that level of mental illness is from any horrific killer that we deal with day in and day out in courtrooms across America, because regular people just don't do what he what he did. okay? But murders happen all the time, especially in domestic situations. Unfortunately. And, and you think about the, and and you got to circle back, right? Because a lot of the focus of this case was on Ronnie O'Neill. But you got to circle back and, and think about the victims. That poor woman who was just, just trying um, to hold on to her life. And she there's a 911 call that she makes. She's begging for her life. She's trying to save her daughter, trying to save her children. and And her life is taken. Her daughter's life is taken. And you can never lose sight of that. And despite the, the incredible focus, and, and we have to have that focus on the defendant, especially in situations like this, because we don't want to do the case again, okay? Like I said, there are rules of procedure, there are rules of decorum, rules of evidence. All of this has to be done correctly and precisely under our system of justice because the results will be scrutinized by appellate courts who will be removed from the situation. They don't know any of the people involved. They weren't in the courtroom watching the, the, the victim's family absolutely break down as they had to listen to this man, okay? They're removed from that. So their decisions are based just on, on, on uh, papers that are filed and transcripts that are produced. All of the other parts of this are taken out. So we want to make sure it's done properly and that the, and that the truth comes out, and, and I think that happened here. I really do on many levels. And I thought the judge did such an amazing job of creating a record for those appellate judges who will look at this, of course, someday and explaining how well the defendant did and how he understood what was going on. And and she kept uh, putting that on the record and, and reminding him of what he had to do and how to do it. And you, you couple that with the, with the testimony and evidence, um, I think we're in a good place. I don't think that little boy is going to have to come back into a courtroom and ever testify again. I think I think he can... It's going to be difficult to move on. I mean, it's always going to be a part, but hopefully he's getting the, he's getting the love from his new family. He's getting the help that he needs. And, and hopefully he can have some semblance of a, of a normal life and not have to go back into a courtroom... And, and relive this again, whether it's in, in one year or in five years. That's the last thing you want. That's why we, we've got to do these things correctly. And that's why there's always so much focus in a case like this on the defendant. But we do that for a reason. We don't do that because we're not thinking about the victim. We don't do that because we don't understand the trial is about the victim. Um, we're doing that because we don't want the surviving victims to have to go through all of this again. And in this case, justice was served. He's guilty. The evidence was there and it was on display and uh, and it was extremely persuasive beyond any and all reasonable doubt. Again, um, folks, check the show notes because uh, you want to know the follow up. You'll you'll have links to highlights from the from the trial so you can see what we have played for you today and also get the final results on whether or not this jury uh, recommended death for Ronnie O'Neill. As far as my personal opinion on on, on death for Ronnie O'Neill, to me, I'm not a juror in the case. Um, There was a prosecutor in that trial I covered once. It was the trial of Rabbi Fred Newlander. And that prosecutor, in his closing argument, said something that really stuck with me. And he didn't argue for death. He didn't argue against death. He just said, ladies and gentlemen, this is an extremely personal decision for you. And I think it's one that you have to make based upon the evidence that I presented to you. And... I, I, I it really struck me because the first time I ever heard that, but it has stuck with me ever since. And, and that's the way I look at this. I, you know, I sometimes I will criticize a jury that, you know, I saw the same evidence they saw, but they saw it a completely different way. And I, I tried to understand where they found reasonable doubt, et cetera. But when it comes to life and death, I mean, you, you can't criticize a juror one way or the other. It's the it's the most difficult thing we ask uh, jurors to do is to make that decision. So whatever decision uh, they make in this case, they make. Uh, I'm not one to judge them on that. But to me, the evidence of guilt was beyond all reasonable doubt. I'm Vinny Politan. I want to thank you so much for listening and downloading the podcast. We do it uh, every week here on Court TV. We're also a television network. We're on every day. Gavel to gavel coverage of the nation's uh, biggest and most important, most compelling trials. And then every night from 8 to 11, I bring you all the big moments from those cases, as well as the other big stories uh, in the world of crime and justice. So if you have a digital antenna, you should be able to get us. If you haven't rescanned it, rescan that digital antenna and look for our signal, or you can go to courttv.com also to find out where to find court TV, where you live. I'm Vinnie Politan. Have a great week. And as always, Don't forget
0: to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.